Let us. This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website www.salvationinchristalone.com to hear more of our messages and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign and we'll see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. Pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless your name again this morning in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the glory of salvation, the glory of the finished work of Christ, the glory of the hope that you have given us in him, and seeing that we have nothing to bring to that transaction, only our sin, which Christ removed by his own death on the cross. So we thank you, Lord, for uh, his faithfulness to do this work on behalf of his people as the good shepherd of the sheep. And we pray, Lord, that you would help your sheep to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, that they may follow him. We pray and we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in John 10, and we are still in John 10, verse 11. I was thinking that maybe we could just go beyond John 10, 11, but that verse is just too important to gloss over it because that's the work of salvation and when we don't understand statements like John 10:11 and what that means in respect to our salvation then we don't understand the gospel and we are bound to be swayed to and fro by every wind of doctrine so if we have to understand who Christ is and what he has done, we have to understand the language that he uses to communicate to us his own work. And when we understand that, then we know what it is that God is teaching us. And so the imagery that God used, the imagery that the Lord used, is very purposeful imagery of the good shepherd and his sheep, and giving his life for the sheep. And we have to look at those words as have been given us to see what it is that he was teaching us. It's very, very important. And you could actually do five long sermons just on that verse. But I think this one will be the last one on this verse. But of course, he is going to come back again later in the chapter and bring back the teaching. So we have some more things to say about that. But today we are going to be talking about the Good Shepherd substitution, imputation, and satisfaction. Because if the Good Shepherd is giving his life for the life of the sheep, it means there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. He's not just showing up and giving his life randomly. 
it's not a random giving of life. It's very purposeful. So we have to understand that. And so for our sermon title, we have the Good Shepherd, the Sheep and Substitution. And this will be part two. The Good Shepherd, the Sheep and Substitution. And that will be part two of our teaching. The Lord Jesus Christ said he is the good shepherd of the sheep. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. Not just some shepherd of the sheep, but the good shepherd of the sheep. And not the good shepherd of the gods, but the good shepherd of the sheep. That's very purposeful language. And I think he meant it. And we have to understand what it means In the context that he said it, what does it really mean that Christ is the good shepherd? And what does it mean for him giving his life? And for whom did he give his life? He obviously was not talking about heading sheep, the four-legged animals, but his sheep, the two-legged ones, these who are elect from before the foundation of the world. And he was not talking about feeding them grass as we have witnessed in the past few months, maybe a year ago. If you still remember that video that was on Facebook and online about this pastor who told his congregation to go outside and eat the grass. That's not the good shepherding. That's not the heading of the sheep that Christ is talking about. He was talking about His work of salvation. And many, unfortunately, many professing Christians do not really understand what those words mean. They almost treat them with suspicion like Jesus did not really mean what he meant to say. That those words really mean nothing with respect to his work of salvation. The writer of Hebrews, writing in Hebrews 13.20 called Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, who made peace by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's a mouthful that we will expound some other time in a different context. But it is related to the work of Christ as the good shepherd. And that is the making of peace by the blood of the cross. So, Part of Jesus being the good shepherd is that his blood makes peace. And if you still remember a couple of sermons ago, I talked about the blood of Christ being better than the blood of righteous Abel. The blood of Abel spoke revenge, but the blood of Christ speaks better things. It speaks of peace and reconciliation. So the blood of the good shepherd makes peace for the sheep with God. It makes peace for the sheep with God. And we need to get more understanding of that language if we are to understand the work of the Lord correctly and if we are to believe correctly also because the gospel is the voice of the good shepherd. So the voice of the good shepherd has to teach us the truth about the person of the good shepherd and the work of the good shepherd. And if we are hearing from the good shepherd, then we have to believe what the good shepherd says about himself.
And so when we are reading the Bible, and when we are hearing the words of Christ, we have to remember that we are sinners who were under condemnation of sin and who have a scheduled appointment with a holy and righteous God to give account. We should never lose of that sight. Very, very, very important. We are sinners who were under condemnation and we have an appointment to meet with a holy, just, and righteous God. That's the problem that we have. And so we have to find a way that we can meet with that God peacefully. So we have to pay attention to what Jesus says because he is from God and knows the things of God. So if you wanted to go, for example, to Zimbabwe and you wanted to learn some things about that country, it's helpful to come and talk to me because I was born there, I was raised there. I know a lot of things that you can't read from books. And so similarly, if someone were to come to the United States, if they were planning to come either to visit or to stay permanently, they would go to the U.S. Embassy or consulate in their country of residence and ask for knowledge of the process. And if everything goes well, ultimately the process will lead them to have a visa. A visa is to say one has met all the conditions of entry into that foreign country. They've met the conditions. And so the visa is stamped in their passport by the consulate. And that visa gives them the legal right to enter into another country. And so the visa basically says you have met the legal requirements to enter into another country. And so if you want to learn about the legal requirements to enter heaven and how God does his business, you go to Jesus, the heaven help desk. I called him the heaven help desk or God's embassy. And he will give you and I understanding of how to enter into that foreign country. You just don't show up in heaven with your bags and with your kids and just thinking that they'll open the door for you. It does not work like that. You need a red passport stemmed by the blood of Christ himself. And I remember when I was coming to the States with my visa in my passport, and that was the only time that I had actually, it was a new passport. And so the only thing that was there was my identity and the visa. And the immigration officer opened the passport, he looked at the visa, scanned it, it was authentic, and he said to me, welcome to the States. My time with him was only about 25 seconds. I was already in. No questions asked. So the immigration officer, when they open the passport, they mostly are looking for one thing. They are looking to see if you have a genuine visa to enter that country. They are not looking to see how cute you are. They are not looking to see how much money you have, how nice the clothes that you are wearing. They do not care for that. All they do is to make sure that you have the right to enter. 
And so when God looks at us, he's not looking for our performance or our cuteness. He says, when I see the blood, I shall pass over you. He is talking about what? He is talking about entrance. He is talking about justification. He is saying, your legal right to enter into my heaven, into my place of blessedness, is only based on one condition. I look at the blood and it's done. It's done. But whose blood? The blood of the sacrifice that he commanded. Not your sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and gods, but the blood of his very own son. So when God says in Exodus chapter 12 to the children of Israel, establishing the Passover feast, he says, when I see the blood on the lentils of the door, I will pass over you. That language is to say, I will not condemn you because you know what he was going to do that night. He was passing through to kill people. But when he saw the blood, this blood of his sacrifice, it was visible to him. Even in the thickness of the night, in the darkness of the night, this blood was visible to him. And if people had put some other blood than the blood of the lamb, guess what? That was not the visible blood. It was the blood that he told them to put on their doors. And so his blood, the blood of Christ, the blood of the sacrifice of Christ, the Passover lamb of God says, you meet all the legal requirements to enter into this heavenly country, this heavenly Jerusalem. And so the question of the gospel is asking you and I and saying, what blood do you have in your passport? What blood do you have? What visa do you have in your passport? What passport are you holding? And who stamped your visa? Who stamped your visa? Remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler went to the heaven help desk. He went to Christ's embassy. He went to Jesus and asked him and said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that was a most excellent question. You could not ask Jesus any better question than that. There's no better question that a sinner could ever ask anybody than that question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And see that the rich young ruler asked the question not to Muhammad, because Muhammad does not have an answer for that. He asked Jesus. Because Jesus knows everything about how one inherits eternal life. So the rich young ruler was asking Jesus for a visa. He was asking for the entry requirements of heaven. Jesus, how do I get a visa to heaven? But Jesus says to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus says, listen young man, the condition for you to get a visa to heaven or to possess eternal life is to forget about you. It is to forget about your accomplishments. It is to forget about your accumulations. That is all your merits. That's the point. Forget about all your merits. 
I am the condition of heaven. And so forget you and follow me. And follow me. So the point was the singularity and sufficiency of Christ to grant eternal life. The whole conversation comes down to follow me. That's the point that Jesus is communicating to him. You follow me. And even now, he is still sufficient for eternal life if you follow him, which means if you stand only on his righteousness, that's what following him means or entails. You are believing on Christ and his righteousness alone as the basis of your acceptance by God. But the majority of the teaching in the professing church has strayed from the understanding of how God grants entry into eternal life. The church world have forgotten the visa process into heaven and how it works. Their teaching says it is the sinner who chose Jesus and made him Lord and Savior. They say it is the sinner who gave their life to Christ. They say it is the sinner who causes their own repentance and God then has to respond to what the sinner does in order to give them life. And some will say life cannot be given to a sinner unless the sinner has some good works. But the problem is they never define for you how much good works one has to bring to be accepted. They never tell you how much. When are you going to make a feel of what has been allotted for you to do so as to earn eternal life that they don't tell you? And so they preach a gospel that has the sheep giving their life for the life of the shepherd. It is the sheep now that have to give Jesus the immigration visa that he may come into their hearts. It's them who have to give Jesus permission to come to their hearts. The sheep now have to purchase the good shepherd by their own tears and their loud cries and their own blood. The sheep now have to remove the curse of the law that was on the shepherd. And that obviously is twisted and certainly is not in agreement with even the practice of heading sheep or any heading of any animal whatsoever. Sheep do not give their life for the shepherd. It is the very opposite. The language of the gospel that Christ is giving us here in this imagery is the language of substitution, is the language of imputation, and it is the language of satisfaction or propitiation. And it is not difficult to understand if we just let the scriptures tell us what God is saying. But let us explore some more the language that was used in the teaching and see if we can get more understanding that was used by the Lord in the imagery of him as the shepherd, his life, and the life of the sheep. Jesus said, he is the good shepherd and not just some ordinary shepherd. That's a huge claim for Jesus to make. Who told you that you are a good shepherd? This is Jesus' opinion of himself. He says, I am not like all these other shepherds. 
I am unique. I am the good shepherd. So Jesus is already boasting of his resume. He is boasting of his shepherding skills. And he says, guess what? It's impeccable. I am that good. I have come to recover all my sheep to myself. And so Jesus is not waiting on anyone to give him a job evaluation on the work that he has done and is doing. But Jesus, why are you the good shepherd? Why are you not a hireling? Because he is not like Adam who gave the life of the sheep away to sin and condemnation. Do you see the difference? Because remember when you're looking at the history of mankind, you are dealing with two people. You're dealing with the first Adam and the second Adam. In the first Adam, the sheep were lost to sin and condemnation. In the second Adam, they are recovered. So Christ is the good shepherd because he recovers the sheep that were lost in the first Adam back to God. So Adam is surely one of the hirelings who did not own the sheep because the sheep were not chosen in Adam but in Christ. The sheep were not chosen in Adam but they were chosen in Christ. But Jesus comes as the sinless son of God who created all things. But not only that, in John 1, 4, John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. So this shepherd is good because he has life in himself. And because he has life in himself, no one can take it away from him. And since his life cannot be taken away from him, he can give it. And when he has given it, It cannot be taken away from those that he has given it. And also, he gives his life to whomever he pleases. So, in the largest context and scheme of salvation, this is how the story is working. As I have alluded to Adam already, but I need to make a few more comments on that. Once the sheep had died in Adam because of sin, Adam had nothing to give the sheep. Adam was helpless because he too was under condemnation. And Jesus, as the second Adam, comes to give his sheep his own life. But why do the sheep need life? And why does the shepherd come to give his life to the sheep? Because the sheep have none. The sheep have no life. You can't be given something that you already possess. The sheep are dead in trespasses and sins, and there are many professing Christians, pastors, preachers, who say, or it doesn't really mean that. Dead in trespasses and sins does not mean one is dead. It means they still have the free will to exercise. But no, it doesn't mean that. To be dead in trespasses and sins means one is in captivity to sin. So the sheep were elect in Christ. The sheep were elect in Christ, but were formed in Adam, and thus died in Adam, and came under the condemnation of all those who were born in the first Adam. And so the sheep need to be recovered back to God from captivity of sin, but they just can't walk the aisle 
and choose Jesus. That's not the formula of being recovered back to God. They need someone to pay a ransom price for them and a very expensive and precious ransom they need for their salvation. They need someone who is not just willing to pay the ransom payment, but someone who can afford to make the payment because the payment is very, very, very high. And when he comes, he also has to do it freely. For the sheep are not billionaire prisoners (laughs) like Benny Madoff. (laughs) They are poor, very poor people in spirit. They are blind prisoners. They are lame. They are withered. They are sick people. They are bent and bowed down and could in no way straighten themselves up. So what has become of man is that they've lost ability to recover themselves to God. So the pictures of the healings of all those sick people in the Bible is just a picture of human inability to serve themselves. That's the theological point. And so the sheep are not able to serve themselves. The sheep are not able to serve themselves. They are not able to serve themselves from sin unless Christ comes and delivers them from the condemnation of it. And the one thing that we downplay is the aspect of sin as a very powerful master. Sin is a very, very, very powerful master. And it's so powerful that it causes us to do things and we don't even know that it is sin that is causing us to do the things that we do. Sin is just part of who we are. We are sinners by nature. So everything that we do in the flesh is always tainted by sin. It is always sin causing us to do its bidding. And so it's very important to affirm the doctrine of human inability in salvation because if we don't believe in human inability and we think that salvation is about making a choice like, okay, I'm going to wear this kind of shoes today. I'm going to wear this kind of shirt today. That's not the choice of salvation. That's not the level that we are talking about. We are talking about a much deeper level at the spiritual level. And one who is born dead in trespasses and sins can in no way stretch out themselves to come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit comes and he gives them power and gives them the desire to come to Christ. But the bigger issue is the very fact that the sheep were under condemnation. That's the issue of the gospel. The gospel is not about all these things I talked to someone yesterday and they were asking me, well, pastor, how do I know God's will for my life? It's a genuine question. And a lot of people, they fall for that kind of question because it sounds righteous, but it evades the real question. The real question that has to be be asked is, pastor, how can I be saved? That's the question. Unless we craft our questions With that understanding, we are never going to believe the gospel even if we come to church. The the, the question of the gospel is, 
I am one born in condemnation and how am I going to meet God in peace? And, and I told the guy, Jesus said, seek ye the kingdom and its righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. That's the answer. I can't tell you what you have to do today or next week because if something fails, guess what? You're coming back to me and say, oh, pastor, God's will for my life has changed. You, you tell me again, what is God's will for my life for this week? <laughs> I can't do that. That's not what I've been called to do. I'm called to preach the gospel and to tell you how you can move from being one who is condemned to one being justified. So the bigger issue of the gospel or the issue of the gospel is condemnation. And being under condemnation and not having the resources to set yourself free. And knowing that as sinful human beings, there's nothing that we can lay our hands on that is sufficient to make that exchange of condemnation to justification. As we know from the book of Job, Job 14 verse 4, Job says, talking of human nature and human inability, Job says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Who can do that? And Job asks that question and he supplies the answer and he says, no one. Why? Because whatever we touch because of sin becomes unclean and God teaches that very well in the book of Leviticus. But hear this also from Job 9.20. Job says, Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. So because of who you are, it's impossible for you to be justified. It just can't be done. Even if you thought you were righteous, it's impossible. Not before God. You can be justified before other men, but not before God. God speaks through Jeremiah and says in Jeremiah 2.22, For though you wash yourself with lye or with soap, and use much soap, you're speaking to your effort of trying to be righteous. Washing with much soap. That's a lot of works. You are working so hard to make yourself clean before God. God says, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. Your iniquity remains before him. It doesn't matter how well or how hard you work to clean yourself. It's not going to happen. God will still see your iniquity. And so the sheep are unclean and are not able to clean themselves up. They can try to wash their sin away with tide or whatever laundry detergent that is within their reach, but it won't go deeper than the stain has gone. Because the issue here is how far the stain of sin has gone. And God says, your detergents, your laundry soap is not going far enough. And you can even soak yourself in some very soapy water and add some bleach overnight and wash yourself in the morning, use some perfumed dry sheets and perfume yourself. But God still says, your iniquity is marked before me. And so the sheep are condemned and are not able to remove the judgment that is on them. The sheep are dead 
and they can't CPR themselves back to life. The Red Cross is not enough for them. And Adam is not enough to resuscitate them back to life. And Moses, the law, can't help them either. This is another thing that the evangelical church is missing. The law is not for resuscitating life in one who is already dead. It cannot happen. It is trying to wash, as God said in Jeremiah 2.22. Moses can only continue to beat you down in the boxing ring and say, Oh, by the way, you are a sinner. You get up. Oh, by the way, I'm going to beat you again. You are a sinner. You do better next time. Oh, by the way, you sinned one more time. And you, as the defeated opponent, cannot just get up. Because you have no strength. And that is why Apostle Paul says, whilst we were still sinners, and without strength, enemies of God, ungodly, Christ died for us. With no strength. We had no strength to get up. There's no way that you can get up after having been beat down by sin. And if nothing is done for you by someone like Christ, there's no hope for you forever. And so then, in the light of all that, the good shepherd comes out looking for the sheep so as to save them. He comes to give his life for them. And now we need to understand very simple language because when God uses language, he means to communicate. And everyone, even us, when we use language, we really mean to communicate some understanding. For is a preposition to say in place of or on behalf of someone in this context. Jesus says he came to die not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the ship and in the place of the ship. And that is the language of substitution. That is the language of the gospel. So what does that mean? It means, according to Jesus, his death was the ultimate transaction and the only transaction by which the life of the ship could be spared could be recovered, could be given. His death in the place of the sheep was the basis on which forgiveness of sins could be made. His death was the basis of reconciliation with God. His death was the basis on which peace could be made between God and the sheep and no other way. Colossians 1, 19-22 Apostle Paul writes and says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, how? Through the blood of his cross. So the sin and Adam caused problems not just for Man, but for all creation, for all things on earth and in heaven. And according to Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 19 and 21, all creation is suffering, is groaning, is mourning, waiting for the full redemption of the sons of God. 
and the redemption of the sons of God and the redemption of all creation is on the basis of the reconciliation that Christ made in his blood. So the blood of the cross is your only basis of peace and reconciliation with God. And beyond that, you have no other hope. And beyond that, there's no cure. You're like someone chewing gum to treat pneumonia or malaria. It may sound like it's working for a minute, but it's not going to work. The sure end of that is death. But Apostle Paul says again, going back to Colossians 1 verse 21, And you, you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled how, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you. So this is the end of that death of Christ. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So it was in the death of Christ that God pronounced you and I holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. And there's no other way by which God can see you as holy. There's no other way for you to be blameless and to be above reproach. And this is the aspect of the gospel that has been so forgotten in the majority of gospel preaching. The gospel is being presented as something that we have to do, as something that helps us to live very meaningful lives. And yes, the gospel can do that, but that's not the issue. The problem is not that you did not have fulfilling lives. The problem was you did not have a payment to transact life before God. And in the language of Apostle Paul, the work of reconciling the believer to God has already been accomplished and accepted. And we who are in Christ are already holy, blameless, and above reproach in God's sight. And we may not appear to be so in the eyes of other men who want to give us a different basis of acceptance, who want to give us a different basis of being blameless. But I'm glad God says the blood of Christ was enough. And I'm glad that God says we are above reproach in his sight, not in my sight. <laughs> because in my sight, I see nothing good. Apostle Paul said right in Romans 7. There's nothing good that dwells in my flesh. So if you're going to look to your own flesh, to look to your own sight, to see if you are blameless. Guess what? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So the reconciliation of the believer is in the body of the flesh of Christ and not outside his body. Do you see that? It's in the body of the flesh of Christ and not outside. And sinners are looking to a gospel that is seeking reconciliation outside the flesh of the body of Christ. That is in their own body, in their own humblings, 
in their own covenants that they make with God. People actually make a lot of covenants with God. Like, God, if you just do this thing for me, then I will. Okay? And guess what? Before the end of the day, they would have broken the commandment. I mean, they would have broken the covenant. And this is all fleshly and profits nothing because we are failing to understand the legal nature of the gospel. You see, the gospel is a legal issue. It's not something that you just dream up every day and think like, okay, what am I going to do to make myself more accepted today? No, it doesn't work like that. God accepts us only in the covenant that he made with his son. In the covenant that is the blood of his son, the death of his son. That's the only covenant that he accepts you and I. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And of course, the book of Hebrews is a commentary of Leviticus. That's the commentary of the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus 17.11, Moses writes and says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So according to the law, there's no purification without blood. There's no justification without blood. There's no sanctification without blood. And so your works are not blood. And on that basis alone, they could never purify a sinner from an evil conscience of sin. And so if you are talking about our own celebrities, we have a ton of money. Bill Gates, Oprah, Tony Cruz, uh, Tom Cruise, <laughs> Madonna and company. They may do some things. Madonna adopts kids from Malawi. You still remember? They may do a lot of good things according to the flesh. But according to Apostle Paul, that does not make them blameless. It does not make them above reproach because they don't have the blood. Because it is only the blood that makes atonement. And it is not any other blood that purifies. It is not our death that purifies us, but the death of Christ. And the death of the two thieves on the cross. If death by itself, if blood by itself was enough for atonement, then the thieves on the cross would have both been justified. But they were not. So even the one repentant thief still had to say to Jesus, you remember me because I know your death, your blood is better than mine. It speaks better things than my own blood. It speaks peace with your father. It speaks reconciliation. And I am dying even now in the hope of your own blood, not in the hope of my own death. Romans 5, 8 and 9. Apostle Paul says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song saying, 
you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What is all that saying? It is saying the blood of Christ is what was required as the ransom price to exchange condemnation for justification. So the death of Christ was the pinnacle. It was the summit. It was the height of the work of redemption. It was by the blood of Christ that the eternal covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of grace was established and ratified. You remember the last supper, you said, this is the new covenant in my blood given for the remission of sins. So it was by his blood that the papers of your standing before God were signed and sealed. It was by his blood that our standing before God was sealed. And so if anyone brings some other understanding of salvation that says you are accepted by God for what you have done or what you do, then they do not know what they are talking about. Your life was never the basis of salvation. What you do was never the basis of salvation. Your good works were never the basis of salvation. Your will, whether free or not, was never the basis of salvation. Your faith, your repentance, you name it, were never the grounds on which God would justify you as a sinner. Never. Even if you had never sinned, you would still need the righteousness of Christ. Because life is only given in Christ through the work of the cross and no other way. So being innocent, a lot of people say, well, God cannot send innocent people to hell. But the problem is, there are none who are innocent. <laughs> there are none. Because according to Romans 5, we are already guilty in Adam. But let's talk about innocence. Let's assume that someone was innocent. Like Adam was before the fall. Innocence is not the same as righteousness. Even though in the correct person, they are associated with righteousness. They are associated together. They come together in the person of Christ. Innocence and righteousness come together in the person of Christ, but not in the person of Adam. Adam was innocent, but he was not righteous in the same sense that Jesus was innocent and righteous. Why? Adam was innocent as the man of the dust who had done Nothing wrong before the fall, but he did not possess an intrinsic righteousness as Christ possessed an intrinsic righteousness. Jesus, on the other hand, was innocent as the life-giving spirit, as the man from above. He said in the book of John, I'm not from below. You are from below. So Jesus is innocent, was innocent as the man from above, holy, undefiled, 
and separate from sinners according to the book of Hebrews. And also, don't forget the nature of the person of Christ. Jesus was innocent, not just as one born sinless, but as the God-man. He's the God-man. And so it is only by him that life and righteousness could come. The creator and sustainer of life, him who holds all things by the word of his power, in whom all things consist and have their being. So Jesus possessed life in himself. Jesus possessed righteousness. The righteousness of God that is not according to the law. And so he alone was the basis on which salvation can be had. The cross then was the only basis that God determined and could bestow life to bring you and myself to him. Why? Because the cross glorifies God alone. The cross glorifies the righteousness of God alone. And as we learned, the cross was God's eternal purpose in Christ. And if the cross was God's eternal purpose, was in Acts 2 and 4, Peter is going to say that. That the Jews and the Gentiles were gathered together to do whatsoever the Lord had predetermined to be done. So in that context, the cross was not plan B, but plan A, because it was the eternal purpose of God. And if the cross was the eternal purpose of God, guess what? The fall of man was also God's eternal purpose in Christ. And so the sin of Adam opened the way to the cross that we may find life and righteousness in Christ. So when we fell in Adam, we fell up. We did not fall down. This is. The elect fell up into Christ. The reprobates, the gods, they fell down into condemnation. Okay. So here again, the basis on which God justifies a sinner. Romans 8, 31 to 34. And I'm working all these things because they are all contained in the language of I am the good shepherd. All this stuff is contained in there. Romans 8, 31 to 34. Apostle Paul writes and says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, is also a reason who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who can be against you if God is for you? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Why? Because God is greater than all. <laughs> but if God is against you, guess what? Everything and everyone is against you. Ultimately, that's what that means. But Apostle Paul teaches us some more and gives us more understanding as to why nothing can be against the elect. The Apostle says, because God gave his own son. That's number one reason. Why is that important? Because there's nothing that is higher and glorious that can be given by God that 
is worth more than the giving of his son. But now to the question of the giving of the son. How did God give his son? Not to come as Santa Claus through the chimney and leave you some Christmas gifts. God gave him to be the sacrifice and propitiation for our sins. And Apostle Paul says God did not spare him. He did not spare Christ. And what does that mean? It means God did not withdraw from us his son who alone was the only basis by which he could give us life and forgive sins. And see that God did not give us the blood of an angel. This is not to say angels of blood. I don't know. But some people will say, oh, did you hear that sermon? He said angels of blood. No, I did not say that. I am saying that God did not give us the blood of an angel, but his own son. And what that means is that God is the one who delivered Jesus to be crucified on the cross and not man. The cross was beyond the ability of sinful men to come up with as the basis of salvation. Sinful men used the cross for condemnation of lowly sinful people, mostly non-Roman citizens. But God used the shame of the cross for the justification of his people. Apostle Paul says, Because God gave his son to suffer the humiliation of death on the cross, he will not hesitate to give us all things freely. He will not withdraw from us any good thing. Why? Because everything else is lesser than his son. And this is what God is saying if I would give you an example. What Apostle Paul is arguing. He says, well, if I have given you $5 million freely, Oh, wow, that would be so wonderful, Jenny. <laughs> Do you think it would be harder for me to give you $100? No, no. And so God is saying, if he has given his son, it's much easier for him to give you everything else. And he would do it freely because he has already given his son his most precious possession freely. So he is arguing from we call that arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God has given you the highest, then it should be very easy for him to give you the lowly things. So to give salvation to you is no big deal for God. It's no big deal, given that he has already given Christ. Okay. So with that understanding, let's keep working some more and start developing some understanding of the language of substitution and imputation because it's there in this text and it's going to help us to support the teaching that is in John 10, 11. Apostle Paul says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one. And what does that mean? There has to be a charge against God's elect. There has to be. The gospel, as I said, is a legal issue. Charges of your misconduct have to be placed on you. The elect, like the rest, are also sinners. They are from the stock of Rahab, the prostitute. They are from the stock of the woman caught in adultery. They are the Samaritan woman, five husbands, 
and a living boyfriend. They are robbers and murderers like by Jesus. So why not charge against God's elect? Why this particular group of people? Because God spared not his only son for them. For them. He gave his son that he may remove the sins and the condemnation of the elect in him. The son was the substitute for the elect. He stood wholly and completely in their place to transact salvation in their place for their benefit. And that is particular redemption or what is also called limited atonement. Salvation is a particular atonement in that Christ died not for everyone, but for the elect. And not for everyone who has the good sense to walk the aisle. He died as the substitute. But who did he substitute for? Because these are the issues of the gospel. Whose sins did he pay on the cross when he died as a good shepherd? Which sheep benefited from that death? When people say Jesus Christ died for the whole world, which world are they talking about? Are they talking to every man, woman, and child who ever lived? If that's the case of universalism, then everyone who ever lived is the sheep. But Jesus, in his teaching, speaks of tares and wheat, of the elect and the non-elect, of the sheep and the gods, and that is not everyone. The term sheep is a term of election. And so the substitution of Christ was for a very particular group of people called the chosen, the elect. And so Jesus died for all the elect in the world from the world of Israel and the Gentiles. From every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, but not everyone who lived. Remember, John is talking to Jews who thought salvation belonged to the Jews and was only for the Jews. And Jesus comes and he expands the boundaries of their understanding and say, no, 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 no. It's for the elect from among Israel and also the elect from among the world and hence the term world. Jesus was not teaching universal atonement. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. So the substitution of Christ was in him carrying our griefs, our sorrows, being smitten, being stricken, and being afflicted by God. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace. Our peace. That language of peace permeates the gospel. Because as sinners, we have no peace. And that chastisement of our peace was upon him. And he could only be so treated 
if our sins had been charged to him, had been accounted, imputed, reckoned to him because he was sinless. As our substitute and as our surety, God legally made him liable to suffer the consequences of what he did not do. And that is the language of imputation. Our sins were imputed to him, but inherent sin remained on us. So the punishment of sin was put on Christ, but the sin remained in us, and that is why we still struggle with sin. Because we have it. But the punishment of it has already been done on the person of Christ. And so we struggle with sin because what was put on Christ was the punishment. It was the guilty of it and the suffering of it and not the sin itself. Christ was and is immutable and sinless. And if you still remember what I have taught before, only mutable moral creatures can sin angels, and men. Okay? So our body of sin shall be done away with in death and glorification. Sin is the enemy that God left in the promised land. And God was already teaching this even as the children of Israel were going into the promised land. He did not remove all their enemies that he may teach them by them. So sin is an enemy that God has left in his people that he may use it to teach his people. So in substitution and by imputation, Christ carried all the sins and the punishment for all the elect and all the sins that they have committed and will ever commit. God ordained all your sins. Because if he did not, then you are in trouble. Because you may just commit a sin that was not covered by the death of Christ. So you're only going to commit as many sins as have already been put on Christ. Praise the Lord for that. So on the day of atonement, if you still remember in Leviticus 16, we are told that Aaron, the high priest, confessed all the sins, not just some of the sins of the people of Israel. Leviticus 16, 21 and 22. Moses writes and says, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live God, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the God, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Verse 22, The God shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the God in the wilderness. All the sins of the children of Israel were confessed on the sacrifice by the high priest. That's very purposeful language. All the sins. Because if God has said, confess some of the sins, but these other kinds of sins, they have to deal with by themselves. You're in trouble. And so Jesus took and confessed all our sins upon himself as both the high priest and sacrifice, and he put them away. The animal sacrifice did not become sinful by having the sins confessed on it. The sin remained on the people who sinned. Rather, the animal sacrificed 
carried the legal liability of the consequences of those sins. And as a result, it suffered the penalty of death and on account of his death, the sinner was set free, still sinful as before. And so the Lord Jesus Christ only carried the legal liability of our sins and not the inherent sin. And as a result, he suffered the legal penalty of those sins. And that is death. And so the sheep that Jesus died for are the elect, not everyone. And there's no one on account of Christ's death who can accuse God's elect before him. Why? Because it is he who justifies. It is he who makes the legal pronouncement of their right standing before him. He declares them unilaterally by himself. He declares them to be righteous before him according to his sovereign will, justice, and righteousness. He declares them to be in full conformity with all the demands of the law because of the death of his son on their behalf. God sees the elect in his son and he always judges them in Christ and never outside Christ because they are elect. They are chosen in him. And just in case you did not understand, Apostle Paul says, who is he who condemns? He repeats the same statement or question. The initial question was, who shall bring a charge? Now the question is, who is he who condemns? Who is he who can pronounce a judgment of condemnation on you? And of course, he is not an, he's not expecting an answer. That is a rhetorical question. But here his argument. Apostle Paul's argument is this. It is Christ who died, not Muhammad who died. Not the Pope who prayed, who prayed you out of purgatory. <laughs> not your good works. But why Christ? Because if Christ died, then he fulfilled and removed the curse of the law that was on you. It is he who died for all your sins. But if someone is not satisfied with that death, Jesus did not remain dead, Apostle Paul says. He says, he also rose not to be in Palestine, but to sit on the right hand of God. And that speaks to his power and authority. It means he has the same power, the same authority and privilege as God. And this power is available for all those who are elect. Should anyone try to mess with them? That's what Apostle Paul is arguing. Christ seated on the right hand of God has the power to intercede and say to God, let her go. I paid for her sins. And so he ever intercedes for them. He ever lives to make intercession for them because the sheep continue to stumble because of their sin. Why would he need to intercede for them if the sheep were already righteous in themselves? So the fact that he ever intercedes for us means we are ever sinning until glorification. And so Jesus uses his power and his authority to intercede for his people as our advocate. He is the one who stands up 
before God and he speaks. We never have to speak anything. If you have a lawyer, you don't talk. You just show up in a nice suit. And when we come before God, we're just going to come wearing very nice garments. We'll be dressed in white, okay? Looking all clean and righteous, looking all innocent, like we're very good people all this time. (laughs) The gospel is a scandal, okay? But listen to the satisfaction that Christ accomplished in his death. We're almost done. Jesus died for the ship. That's very clear from him. He died on behalf of the ship. And so let's talk some more about what that may mean in terms of your acceptance. And I thought of an example because I watch National Geographic a lot. If a pride of 15 lions, hungry lions, find and catch a baby deer, do you think that would be enough food for the 15 of them? No. It's not going to be enough. It will be gone in a matter of maybe five minutes or less. It's gone and they are still hungry. They're still not satisfied. But I have seen a lion take down, lions take down, there are probably like 22 of them, take down an elephant at night. And this was a huge meal. This was a huge meal. And they all ate to their satisfaction. And if for some reason this elephant had a baby and it so happened to be within sight, I'm willing to bet that the lions would not go and kill it. I've actually seen some lions not even killing some babies. Why? The the point that I'm trying to put across is satisfaction. If the lions have their fill, they are satisfied. They don't want any more food for that particular time. So if the elephant that was killed actually had a baby, a baby with it, chances are very high that the life of the baby would be spared because the mother was big enough to provide satisfaction. So what is my point? My point is that Jesus' death could only spare us the ship if it provided satisfaction to our enemies. Because you see, the lions are enemies to baby elephant and to the mother. If the shepherd dies, the one who was supposed to give us protection, then we are even more vulnerable after he has died. Unless one thing happens. Unless his death gives satisfaction to what killed him. His death has to give satisfaction to what killed him. Otherwise, what's going to happen? That which killed him, his enemies would also come to scatter and to kill us. And that would make him a hireling, a charge that Jesus strongly denied. But we are talking about theology. The theology of Jesus is that if he dies, then satisfaction is guaranteed. If he dies, the life of the sheep is guaranteed. The sheep are safe. And so his death completely satisfied the demands of the law, sin, and death. Because if the demands of the law, if the demands of sin are not satisfied, you and I are still under condemnation. You and I are still under 
under the power of the devil. And we know that, according to Apostle Paul, on the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle of the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of the principalities and powers. And he removed the curse of the law. That ordinance of writing, of handwriting, that was contrary to us. He nailed it on the cross. All those things are things that are against you. He removed the wrath of God that was on you. He took it all away by his death. His death was sufficient to remove all these things from you. And so, to come and say, well, the believer is still under the law of Moses, is to say the law still has a claim on you, and that the death of Christ was not enough to give the law to satisfy the law with what it needed. It is to say Christ was insufficient to protect us from the demands of the law. Remember what the text says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. Apostle Paul making a contrast between the new covenant and the old covenant. He says in verse 6, the letter kills. The letter that was engraved on stone, the Ten Commandments, the old covenant, the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of death, it kills. It kills. And people try to make gymnastics about this. They say, oh no, it is not the Ten Commandments. It's the ceremonial law that Christ removed. Christ did not go on the cross because we broke the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was given just to teach the appearance of the one who would come and cleanse us. It's the ten that condemned. It is the tablets of stone that kill. So the law is not a friend of a sinner. The law has nothing on Christ. He's sinless. But the law is bad for you because you can't keep it. That's the point that people don't get. The law can only tell you that you can't do it. And guess what? Condemns you. The purpose of the law is not to give life. It is to condemn you and to show you that you have no life. It is the spirit that gives life. And why can't people, preachers and believers, see that contrast? You see, people bring opinions to the text rather than saying what the text actually says. And so the death of Christ, according to Jesus, the death of Christ protected the sheep from the condemnation of the law. It removed them from the realm where the law had power over them to condemn them. And the law kills because it is good. That's what Apostle Paul says in Romans 7. The problem is me. The sinner is not good. And the law only recommends one thing for a sinner. Death, not parole. <laughs> and so the elect died with Christ. And they died from the realm in which the law had jurisdiction. We died with Christ. That we 
may be married to him. We died to the law through the death of Christ that we may be married to Christ. So the law is one husband. Christ is another husband. We can't be married to both husbands. You die to the one that you may be married to the another. That's a very clear teaching of Apostle Paul in Romans 7. And so in Christ giving his life as the good shepherd, he was satisfying for the elect what God required of their salvation. And Jesus' death alone was enough to provide this satisfaction. Isaiah 53 verse 11. I had to explain a lot of things. Sorry. That's what happens when you're a preacher. That's what happens when you're a preacher. Oh, 53 11. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens too. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. You can say he shall see the death of Christ and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You see the language that Isaiah uses. Labor. There's no woman who has satisfaction in a labor that results in a miscarriage. They're only satisfied when they see the product of their labor, their child. And that is why Jesus would say of himself in John 16, 21, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow. Because her hour has come. Her hour of delivering the baby has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so the death of Christ was his labor to bear children to God. John 1, 12, 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so Christ on the cross, in his death, he saw the offspring and he held them and he was satisfied. And so the giving of the life of the shepherd was in substitution. The giving of the life of the shepherd was in substitution. He died in place of the sheep and for the benefit of the sheep. And that transaction, the merits of that transaction were transferred into the account of the sheep. It was imputed into the account of the ship. So when God looks into your account, right now as things stand, he only sees the righteousness of Christ. You never run out of righteousness when it comes to Christ. Okay, He sees the wisdom of Christ. He sees sanctification, redemption. He sees glorification. He, in Christ, sees us as holy, spotless, and above reproach. My friends, God is truly pleased and satisfied with what Christ did for you. He is. And Jesus was truly pleased as the one who gave birth to the child. He is pleased and satisfied with what he did for the sheep. The only ones who are not satisfied are the sheep. Why? Because they have forgotten who they are. They have forgotten the heaven 
visa process and how it works. Christ already met the conditions and there are no more conditions to be met by the sinner for their acceptance by God. And may God be pleased to cause you to be pleased in him who said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the good shepherd of the sheep, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for giving himself, giving himself as our substitute that he may die a death that we could not die and give satisfaction to the demands of life and righteousness. So Lord, we are thankful that he accomplished it all, he paid it all, and we, the sheep, are safe. And we just pray that this would be the gospel that your people will continue to hear, that they are blameless before you and are above reproach because of the blood of your son. May this be their joy and their hope, now even on the day that you shall call them to yourself. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.